Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just before we have a word of prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we open your word once again. And we pause to pray because we realize that this word is like no other word. It is yours. And we know that for your word to be effective in our lives, your spirit must work within us. The power is not in the words of a speaker. It's not in notes on a page. It's not in clever outlines or fascinating stories. The power is in you, in your working. So open our ears, I pray, that we might hear, that this word might be planted. Father, I pause also just for a moment. One other request I forgot earlier. As, uh, as Olivia came and asked that we pray for her mom, Carrie, who's not feeling well today. So Lord, we do come to you with her need. And Lord, thank you for a tenderness of heart to, to be aware of our needs and to seek you, Lord, to learn to pray, to cast our needs upon you. So often when we're going through difficulties and hardships and even sickness, our first response is so often to look elsewhere. We come to you. Um, we come to you with our sicknesses. We come to you with aches and pains. We come to you with sorrows because you care. So, Lord, we cast these burdens upon you. Now, Lord, open our ears, we pray. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged 
every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This concludes the reading of God's word. On the screen there is a picture of my dad's World War II army uniform. So there's some glare on it because it's behind glass. My brother a few years ago had my dad's uniform put in a shadow box. So it's a way of sort of preserving it and being able to, to display it. It's been a long time since my dad wore that uniform. Um, but when he did, he represented something bigger than himself. He represented the United States Armed Forces. And when he was in that uniform, especially, his conduct wasn't just viewed as the conduct of Willard Ashley. It was viewed as the conduct of the U.S. Army. I didn't serve in the military. Um, I did play sports, not that I'm trying to compare the two, but... Uh, and we wore uniforms, um, whether playing basketball or playing soccer. And we wore the uniforms mostly to distinguish uh, between the two teams in competition. That's a necessary thing to do. But, but wearing the uniform also reminded us and reminded me that what I was doing wasn't really about me. It was about a team. I represented the team. And when we competed, uh, the, the opponent, you know, the, on the other side, on, on the side, typically they did not know me personally. They just knew that I was part of the team. And if I played dirty, I tried never to do that, but if I, if I, if I played dirty, if something would come out of my mouth that ought not to come out of my mouth, I wasn't just casting a cloud over myself, I was casting a cloud over our team. Because, you know, on, on the opposing team's trip home, you can imagine that they're not going to talk about me by name and what I did because they didn't know me. My conduct would have a lingering impression in their minds. It would leave that lingering impression about my team. You see, in the uniform, I represented the team. The, the way I played became the reputation for the way my team played. Paul says something to the Thessalonian church that I think sort of touches on this idea. It's actually there in the, the last verse that I read in chapter 2 and verse 12 when Paul exhorts these Christians that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That, that exhortation really gets to the core of authentic Christianity. That, that, that exhortation, I think, gets to the core of, of an authentic church what it means really to be the church of Jesus Christ. It was the example that Paul and his team set before the church that he's been describing here in chapter 2. And it is the, the example that this church in turn 
followed. And as this church, as these Christians, these young Christians, followed the example of Paul and his team who themselves walked worthy, this church, after just a very few months, was having an amazing impact that reached beyond their city. It reached into their region. It reached into their whole country. An impact that, that so, sort of from a human standpoint, a human point of view, that this church, that young, should not be having that kind of impact yet. Okay, it can't happen that fast. They're not ready. They're not prepared. They haven't learned enough to have that kind of impact, and yet they were having that kind of impact. We have been, as we've been opening the pages of, of 1 Thessalonians just zeroing, zeroing in on the theme of a church for the darkest hour. And the reason for that is this was a church that was birthed in a very dark place, the city of Thessalonica, thoroughly uh, under the control of the Roman Empire and the, and the religions and the, and the paganism of that day, a, a city where, where Paul and his team experienced opposition. They, they actually had to leave town, sort of flee town early uh, to get out of town. So, so there, was, there, was, uh, there was darkness, opposition, and, and I'm reminded, anymore I'm reminded daily that here in our own nation, as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we live in, a, in a, an increasing sense of, of, of spiritual darkness, the, the confusion that is there, the conflicting values it is becoming increasingly difficult in this nation for conflicting values to be able to seem to get along. And they are running into opposition to each other. But according to Jesus, this should not surprise us at all. And so the question is, how should the church respond? What kind of church do we need to be? in this day and time in order to have the kind of, of ministry, the kind of impact that God would have us to have. And my mind and my heart goes to, to this book, to this church, because here's a church that had that kind of impact. A church from which we can learn. So, so that's, what, that's why we are in this book, and that's why we've started our journey through. And we've gotten into chapter 2, and, and here in the first 12 verses of chapter 2, we sort of slowed down because in, in a general description, what Paul is describing here in these verses is what we've called an authentic church, a church that is for real, a church that is not fake. It's not a church with a fake message. It's not a church that's living out a fake life. It's not a church that's led by fake leaders. It's a church that's for real, an authentic church. An authentic church is the kind of church that's gonna, that is going to have a, a, an impact, make a difference in this dark time. Fake churches aren't going to make it. They're going to they're blend right in. They're going to they're be lost. An authentic church. And, and uh, I, I slowed way down because we could have, I suppose, done it all in one message, but there's like five descriptions in here, and we've taken... We've taken a message to look at each of them. We, we, we've seen that an authentic church is transparent. I mean, it, it's, it's a church where, where its members, its people don't live in hiding. It's a church where each of us don't run into our own little safe spaces. But it's out there. It's open. And we share our lives with one another. It's a, an authentic church is a church that perseveres, knowing the opposition, counting the cost. It's a church that stays true to the message and the mission of Jesus Christ. An authentic church is a church that pleases God. 
It's not a church that's driven by the opinions of man, the pressures of man, the pressures to conform and to adjust and to change. It's a church that is driven to please God. An authentic church we saw as a vulnerable church. Again, the, the openness of the church, the openness of leaders, the openness of members, the closeness, the involvement in our lives, one with another. And finally, this morning in this description here in verse 12, we find that an authentic church longs and lives for another kingdom. Longs and lives for another kingdom. And so Paul, as he says in verse 11, like a father who is speaking to his children, a father who is, who is instructing them, a father who's getting his children ready to, to, to grow up and to venture out on their own, like a father speaking to his children, Paul exhorts these young Christians to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That admonition is as relevant in 2018 as it was back in that first century. Walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. That exhortation reminds us two things I want to think about briefly this morning. First of all, it reminds us that we belong to a new kingdom. The church, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, belong to a new kingdom, and it is not an earthly kingdom. It is God's kingdom. God's kingdom. Interesting, when Jesus was on trial uh, before Pilate, the Roman governor, they got into a, you know, Jesus didn't say a whole lot in those trials, (laughs) but in his trial before Pilate, they got into a very brief discussion about kingdoms. And uh, it's in John, uh, in John chapter 18, Jesus, uh, well, Pilate had asked the question. He said, are you the king of the Jews? And so it leads to this discussion. And Jesus says to Pilate, my, my kingdom is not of this world. Because let's look at what he says. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. They'd be taking up arms. They'd be using every available resource, weapon, tool they had to fight for me. If, he says, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. So I shouldn't be delivered to the Jews. I mean, if my kingdom was of this world, Pilate, I wouldn't even be standing here in front of you. But now, and that's an important word, my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate said, well, are you a king then? And Jesus' response, you say rightly, I am a king. You're correct, I am a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. My kingdom is not of this world. But then notice, you know, the, this emphasis on king. He says, my kingdom, my kingdom, and, and, and my kingdom. And then, well, are you a king? Yes, I'm a king. But he says, let me, let me, tell, you about, let me tell you about what my cause is as, as a king. My, my cause is this. this is why, as the king, I have come from another world. I have come into this world for this reason that I should bear witness to the truth. This is what my kingdom is about, Jesus says. I have come to declare the truth. I have come to bear witness for the truth. 
His mission was not going to be accomplished through the weapons of this world. His mission was going to be accomplished through the proclamation and the declaration of the truth as he came to bear witness of the truth about God, as he came to reveal God's glory and God's perfection and God's beauty and God's holiness and God's sovereignty and God's justice and God's love. He does that. He comes with that cause. He comes on that mission so that mankind might know God, that they might glorify him as God, which is the essence of eternal life. And this happens, this happens through the declaration, the proclamation, the spreading of truth embodied in Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except this way. Kingdom is not of this world. It's a different It's a different kingdom. Well, the dialogue between the two actually continues over in chapter 19, where, where there was a few more sentences in between, and then, and then Pilate, Pilate says to Jesus, well, well, where are you from? Where are you from? Because Jesus said, listen, I, I came, you know, I'm not from here, I came into this world. Well, where are you from? And Jesus' response, silence. Doesn't answer the question. Pilate taken back. Are you not speaking to me? I mean, do you know who I am? I am, I am Rome. I am, I am the, the empire of Rome. I am authority. You're not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? Or that I have power to re- release you? Don't you realize the power and the authority I have as a governor of the Roman Empire? Jesus' response, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. <laughs> from above. You, you could have no power at all and against me unless it had been given to you from another kingdom that obviously is greater than Rome. That was Jesus' take on this kingdom thing. You see, Jesus' kingdom was going to be implemented a different way. His kingdom is established by changing the heart. The heart's got to be changed. That's why he came, because the law couldn't change the heart. I mean, the law, I suppose, could regulate a kingdom, but couldn't change the heart. He came to change the heart and, and to reconcile sinners to God which is the essence of the gospel message. Now, th- this kingdom that, that is spoken of by Jesus and this kingdom that is spoken of by Paul here in, in, in verse 12 is a kingdom that will be revealed in its full glory when Jesus Christ returns. It, it will be a kingdom in which he rules over this world in, in grace and mercy and truth and justice and righteousness. In, in fact, that, the, the inclusion of that word, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, that word glory really does point our attention, especially to that future dimension of the kingdom when it comes. When it comes. 
It's not an earthly kingdom at this stage in the plan of God, as we might think of earthly kingdoms. It's from another world. It's God's kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is accessible only by divine help. This is a kingdom that no army can storm the gates and just find their way in. This is a kingdom that nobody can slip into through the back door. This is not a kingdom where you can go in those ancient times and find that place in the walled city where, you know, where the water would flow into the city and, and you sneak an army in you know, through, through that opening and you conquer the city. This kingdom is not entered that way. The only way into this kingdom is through divine help, which is why Paul says that God, in verse 12, God calls you into this kingdom. That's the only way in. The only way into this kingdom is if God invites you in. The only way into this kingdom is if, is if God calls and says, you, you're in my kingdom. Seems pretty brutal. That's how it works. Jesus said this to, to Nicodemus. If you remember, Nicodemus was a religious leader in Israel who had some questions. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he says the same thing in a little different way. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Not, you know, cannot see the kingdom of God, same thing as not entering the kingdom of God. Born again is to be born of water and of the Spirit. Apart from that, you don't get into the kingdom. You don't get in. It's the only way into this kingdom of which he is speaking. This is a a supernatural kingdom, and the only way into this kingdom is through the supernatural work of God. It is through new life. It is through new life and, and through the forgiveness and the cleansing of Jesus Christ, sin must be cared for in the old, in the old man. And that new life that we have through our cru- crucified, resurrected Savior must be ours. That must be the experience of our life if we are to come into this kingdom. New life. Cleansing of sin. Brand new life through our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. You see, the way into this kingdom... Paul reminds us in this verse is the, what we call the regenerating call of God. To regenerate is to give life again. It is second birth. That's God's term, second birth. The regenerating call of God. And in fact, it's what the Thessalonians themselves had experienced. Go back to chapter 1. And we see, we see it in chapter 1 where he is writing to these Christians in verse 4. He says, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. That's part of this calling in the Scriptures. Part of this calling chosen by God. The election or the choosing of God is a part of this calling. Verse 5, he goes down. He says, then our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So, so there, is the, there is the electing grace of God, and then that call is issued through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul said came in power, and it came in the Holy Spirit. With what result? Verse 9 They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. (laughs) These believers had experienced that. 
These believers have been called into the kingdom of God and the glory of God. God was the one, chose them, called them through the proclamation of the, of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. They repented of their sin. They trusted in this one Jesus Christ, this Savior, and they were delivered from the wrath to come. To be delivered from the wrath to come is to be in the kingdom. To not inherit the kingdom of God is to be under the wrath of God. It's a kingdom that can only be, ha- that can only be entered with divine help. All right? Um, you don't purchase tickets ahead of time. Okay? You, you don't, you're, not, you're not working right now to make yourself worthy of entering the kingdom. This is the work that God does. We're also told in the scripture that it's a kingdom that is first priority. That you would walk worthy, that you'd walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This this kingdom is a kingdom that is first priority. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And and in the context, both in Matthew and in Luke, these things that he's referring to are things like food and drink and clothing and shelter. Everything that we think we need to survive. Everything we think that's required for us to live here on this earth. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and those things will will be provided for you. Interesting, all the nations and all the kingdoms of the world seek after these things, Jesus said. Uh, and, and obviously in the course of human history, the, the, the kingdoms and the nations of this world fight with each other to get more of it. They want more land. They want, they want more power. They want more of the gold. They want more of the produce. They want, they want more of the productivity. So the nations fight to get all this stuff. And Jesus says, don't even worry about that. I'll take care of that. I'm going to give you what you need. You seek my kingdom first. That is the priority. And it's interesting in that context, he says this, that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So which kingdom do you treasure more? Which kingdom are you truly living for first? You see, because this kingdom is not of this world. This world is no longer our native land. This is a perspective the church of Jesus Christ has got to grab a hold of and hold on to it tightly. Because we belong by God's calling to his kingdom. And his kingdom is not of this world. This world, for the believer... It's not our native land. God's kingdom is. Billy Graham said this. He said, my home is heaven. I'm just traveling through this world. This world is not our home. And this isn't the only text in Scripture that reminds us of that. It's not our home. We have been called into another kingdom. And it's not a political kingdom as we think of politics. 
It's not an ethnic kingdom. It's God's kingdom. Made up of some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's a kingdom of priests, the scriptures tell us. This is the kingdom to which the church belongs and this is the kingdom for which the church longs. It's why God's people willingly suffer now because now is not forever. Something greater is coming. Something greater is coming. And we are a part of that right now. We belong to that right now. These Thessalonian believers were something else because if you go over to the second letter that Paul wrote to these same believers, let me read another, another testimony regarding them in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4-10, through 10, where Paul says this as he writes to them, "...so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. (laughs) A little glimpse of what they were experiencing. A little glimpse of what was to come. We belong to, a, to another kingdom, called into that kingdom by the grace of God. Which leads to the second point to be made from the, that verse, that we are therefore to walk worthy of belonging to this new kingdom. We are to walk worthy of belonging to this new kingdom. You see, this this admonition, this exhortation to walk worthy means that we don't just long for God's kingdom in the future. We live for it now. Right now. It orders our lives right now. God's call and the coming kingdom of glory define the church's existence and it impacts what we do right now. Now, when he talks here and exhorts them in verse 12 to walk worthy, he's talking about living life in a way that God deserves from us. In light of all that he's done for us. You see, a a, a worthy walk is a manner of living that matches who we are. It's a manner of living that matches what we profess to believe. It's a manner of living that reflects the kingdom to which we belong. The kingdom which is of our first priority. It means, church, that we are going to live differently than the world because we're going to see the world differently. We're going to see people differently. Because of the call of God upon our lives and the grace of God and the working of the Spirit of God to transform us, we see the world differently 
as we look through the eyes of God's kingdom. We will be a people of compassion. Compassion like we see Jesus had for the widow, for the orphan, for the poor, for the outcast. So grateful and humbled for those of you who especially have put put action to that compassion for the orphan through foster care, through adoption. And it's driven, yes, by by love for for those little ones, but an even deeper drive. This is something that God values. We see, we see this, this worthy walk demonstrated in relational harmony in the home. It can happen because of God's gracious call. This worthy walk is to be seen in racial harmony in the church, which tragically remains elusive. And yet perhaps could be one of the greatest demonstrations of authenticity if it could be achieved. We are in We are in a time right now where churches are on the brink of backing away from everything they've tried to do. We can't do that. We can't go there. A walk that is worthy is a walk in which there's racial harmony in the church. It's a walk that is righteous. It's a walk that is generous. It's a walk that seeks a just society, not just for me, but for all. It's seen in contentment. It's seen in patient suffering. It's seen in praying for and forgiving our enemies, even as Christ did. Now, this is not not about bringing in the kingdom of God. That's future. Only one person can bring in the kingdom of God, and that's the king. But, This is about belonging to the kingdom of God right now. Right now, this morning, as we gather in this place, as those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, we belong to this kingdom. And we ought to expect that the kingdom of God will collide with the kingdoms of man. An authentic church doesn't forget this. And it doesn't, lose, it doesn't lose its bearings when the collision happens. Church, we have, in, in the words of, of Scripture, we have put on Christ. How we live as a church is to demonstrate the desirability of God. That's what it means to walk worthy. How we live as a church is to demonstrate the worth of of Christ. When we talk about walking worthy, this, is, this has nothing to do with gaining merit before God. This has nothing to do with trying to prove our worthiness. That's not what he's talking about. It is a manner of living that demonstrates the worth of Christ. Walking worthy means we represent Him. So let me ask you a question. If, if strangers, and I'm going to 
use that term to refer to those who are not saved, who have not made profession of faith in Jesus Christ. If strangers hung around us for a while, I'm not talking about just came to one of our worship services. I'm saying if, if strangers hung around us for a while and heard our formal and informal conversations in the classroom, in the foyer, uh, and even away from here, and, and we're, were participants in our laughter and in our tears, if they read our social media posts, if they listened to our prayers, if these strangers hung around with us for a while and caught a true glimpse of what ignites our passions, would they conclude, number one, that our greatest passion is Jesus? And would they conclude that Jesus truly loves them Or would they conclude that our true passion lies elsewhere and maybe Jesus doesn't much care for them? Ponder that. They hung around us for a while. They listened. They watched. They read. Would they conclude that Jesus truly loves them? Or would they conclude that maybe Jesus doesn't much care for them? See, walking worthy, it's not about trying to make yourself worthy to God, because you can't do that. It's seeing the worthiness of God displayed through the infinite worth of Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again who is of greater worth than anything. Anything. Walking worthy in this manner is living to reflect Jesus as infinitely worthy. As as a church, demonstrating that Jesus Christ is our greatest treasure, our greatest delight. He is our soul's satisfaction. He is the object of our love. He is the one to whom we devote our life, our energy, our time, our resources, whatever we have to display His infinite worth to the world. Does the world see that? Do they hear that? Do they sense that? You see, living for God's kingdom does not disengage us from this world. Rather, it gives us our reason for engaging the world. So what does God deserve from we who have been rescued by his Son? Whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. The Thessalonian church grabbed hold of this. And their impact on their world was amazing. So church, 
Northfield Baptist Church. Walk worthy. An authentic church is consumed with the worthiness of Christ. And a church that is consumed with the worthiness of Christ will impact their world for Christ. Let's pray. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never called upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior. If that's, if that's true, if, if, you're, if you're someone who just has not come to that point in your life yet where you've called upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior, let me just say this, that it's, be, it's because you've not yet seen his infinite worth. I pray for God to do that today. Some say that seeing is believing. Well, let me just say this. Believing will be seeing. Ask him to be your savior. Call upon him to be your savior. Believer, let me just ask this. On a scale of one to ten, how worthy of God and his kingdom is your walk right now? What would it take to to nudge you up one more number on the scale this week? What unfinished business is there in your life? What, what, What sin are you not dealing with? What fear are you allowing to control and hold you back that that keeps you that keeps those numbers down? What 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 step could you take this week that would allow that that scale to nudge up? of walking worthy. Church, what if we pursued a 10 on that scale? What if our community encountered a church that was the essence of Jesus living right here in Northfield? What if the people who spend time with us, came to see how much God truly loved them and how ready he was to forgive them and welcome them into his arms because of our love for him. If we walk this worthy walk, could it be there could be some revival in our hearts? Might it be that God would save some? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. This is time for you to, to do business with the Lord. This is his word. As individuals, as a church, we ought to do business with the Lord. Part of our worship is responding to him. If you need to know the Lord, call upon him to, to save you. If you need to can deal with some things in your life, confess it to the Lord. I'd also invite you as we sing, if we could be of help to you to slip out, come to the front. Something about those public decisions that
help to confirm and nail them down, like driving down that tent peg, <laughs> something to hold on to. We'll have men and women who can go aside and pray with you. Answer some questions, perhaps. You come as we sing, as we respond to the Lord. For your glory, Father, may we obey your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.